as praise of all belongs to Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. This Christmas season, we're looking at uh, the coming of the Savior from a forward-looking perspective of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, if you want to join me there, will be in chapter 49, like Clay read earlier in such a helpful way. Uh, Isaiah, he enjoyed a long ministry during the days of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, and that was about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And the Lord had much to say through Isaiah about uh, a few things, about the coming Babylonian exile that Israel and Judah would face, about their deliverance from exile after the 70-year time frame, and that would be by the hand of Cyrus the Great. And like Evan mentioned last week, uh, this book is uh, often nicknamed the gospel according to Isaiah because he has so much to say about the coming deliverance that would come through Messiah. And so uh, our passage in Isaiah 49 is the second of four songs that we're looking at this Christmas season, the servant songs of, of Isaiah. <clears throat> but before we get there, uh, I want to try to explain something about the larger context of this section of the book that I hope will help make this servant song make sense. So, uh, Legan Duncan, you may not know that name, but uh, he explains that when we're dealing with prophetic books in general, prophetic writing in general, there's a pattern that we often see showing up over and again. That's a pattern of problem promise provision problem promise and provision so the lord will rebuke an audience for a particular problem that's at hand and then he will make a gracious promise of restoration or forgiveness or future blessing and then finally we see his merciful provision of that promised restoration problem promise provision and last week uh, the first servant song that we looked at in Isaiah 42 the problem of Isaiah 42 was found in Isaiah 41 namely the problem of idolatry and specifically how that idolatry leaves people in darkness and in silence with no word from God and into that problem came the promise of the Lord's servant he, he says, you know, behold the folly of idolatry, behold my servant. So into that problem came this promise of the coming servant of the Lord. And, and he would bring what idols cannot bring. He would bring justice and the Lord's law, and he would bring light to the nations and to the peoples. Well, with the remaining three servant songs, that's 49, 50, and then 52 into 53. And the problem is the people's bondage. Now, I found uh, commentator Alec Motyer's explanation helpful here, so I'm going to share his thoughts with you. He explains that we're thinking broad context, so chapters 44 through 55 of Isaiah present two servants that God would use in the future from Isaiah's point of view to rescue his people from 
from bondage. That's the problem. The two servants, Cyrus the Great of Persia, uh, and the second one being the capital S servant of the Lord. On the one hand, the Lord promised to send Cyrus to deliver God's people Israel from the problem of bondage in Babylon. And this is uh, fresh on our minds, and the provision of that is fresh on our minds from our study in the book of Ezra. And on the other hand, the Lord promised to send his capital S servant of the Lord to deliver God's global people from the greater problem of bondage to spiritual darkness. Christmas reminds us of the great provision of that promised help. So two servants, the lesser deliverer for the smaller rescue and the greater deliverer for the greater rescue. And chapters 44 through 48 deal with that lesser rescue and Cyrus is brought up by name a long time before he was even born and then how the Lord would use him in his sovereign hand to bring deliverance from Babylon. And then as we reach chapter 49, as this one opens, the, the servant of the Lord, capital S, I keep wanting to distinguish that, uh, the servant of the Lord begins to speak about the greater deliverance that was promised. So uh, before we hear his voice this morning in the text, let's pray together for his help. Our Lord and our King, we bow before you, knowing that this is your word, inspired, inerrant, infallible, preserved. You've made yourself known to us, and I pray that you would open our eyes to to behold your servant and to hear his voice this morning from the text pray that you would give me clarity of thought and of speech to bring forth your message from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's read again Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 13. This is the word of God. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. Excuse me. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. We thank God for his word. Here is this passage. Excuse me, sorry about my voice. Here is this passage. Excuse me, summarized in a sentence. Jesus is the divine servant of the Lord, born of woman, to bring glory to God by prophetically bringing the light of salvation to people of all nations of the world and leading them all the way home. So I know it's a mouthful, I'm going to say that again. This is where I'm aiming with this passage this morning. Jesus is the divine servant of the Lord, born of woman, to bring glory to God by prophetically bringing the light of salvation to people of all nations of the world and leading them all the way home. And I'll probably say that again along the way. So as we're studying these servant songs, <clears throat> let, it, let this one help answer these questions for you during this Christmas time or considering his coming. Who is the baby lying in Bethlehem's manger? Who exactly is he? What makes his coming of such significance that verse 13 there would call all of creation to rejoice in singing? What's so special about that baby in a manger? Now, these verses are very dense with biblical theological connections, and they span in both directions of the the scriptures. So we're not going to be able to unpack it all in one sermon. I tried. I couldn't make it happen. Uh, and the more I studied, the more connections I found, and the, the, the further it reached. And so what my aim is is to spend most of our time in the first six verses and then to wrap up with a, a brief survey of the remaining verses. And this passage unfolds in two speeches 
We had the speech of the servant, then we have a speech from the Lord, and then that's followed up by a call to respond. So that's our divisions for today. So point number one, the servant's speech, verses one through six. Let's look again at how the passage opens in verse one. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Now, Isaiah 42 called us to behold the servant of the Lord. And this song opens with the servant himself calling all peoples of the earth near and far, listen to me. So we barely gotten started and we already have helpful guides to our prayers that the Lord would give us eyes to see that we might behold his servant and that we would have ears to hear his voice. Now, as he begins his speech, notice how he identifies himself. The servant's identity consists in this passage of, first, that he's born of a woman. Look at again in verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Now, this call from the womb, it's, it's written in, in fashion in such a way as to sound very much like other prophetic callings. Uh, it may bring to mind for you the prophet Jeremiah and how he was called even from the womb. Before he was born, the Lord knew him and set him apart as a prophet. And this, I think, is supposed to, to ring of the same type of calling. Yet, yet, I think that it's no small thing that the text tells us that he would be born of a woman. So what's so special about that? I mean, isn't everyone born of a woman? Yes, that's true. But do you recall the first time that God said the hero would be born of a woman? All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And Isaiah has already had the opportunity throughout the course of his book here to make much of this one who would be born of woman. In Isaiah 7, 14, he writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, you sh and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or in chapter 9 of Isaiah 6 and 7, uh, for unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then after the arrival of this servant, uh, the New Testament ties it all together for us. Uh, for example, in Galatians 4.4, 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So right away, we're looking at the identity of the servant. We see that he is that seed that we've been waiting for ever since the fall, ever since the garden. The servant of the Lord is the one who would come and crush the serpent's head. He continues in verse 2 and says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. 
in his quiver he hid me away. This is Hebrew parallelism. He says the same thing using two different metaphors to paint the same picture. And these pictures, or these words, paint pictures in our minds of the servant's prophetic word and its piercing effectiveness. It's like that two-edged sword. It's like that polished arrow that pierces and penetrates deeply. His word that would come from his mouth would penetrate. It would be cutting. As Hebrew says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's coming, born of woman, in a ministry of prophesying the word of God. Yet, like a sheathed sword or an arrow that's in the quiver, he's hidden away until the appointed time. And so the servant is given this prophetic ministry to bring this penetrating word of God to the people. And indeed, more even more so, he would become the word of God himself in the flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And what's more, I think... Uh, not only is he a prophet bringing the word of God that penetrates deeply, but I think we can say most accurately that he will become the final prophetic word of God. And Hebrews helps us again in chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. So we see that the servant of the Lord is the final prophetic word of God made flesh. The introduction continues. The uh, identity is continued to be revealed. So we've seen he's born of woman. And we see that he's the final word of God. The final prophetic voice. And then thirdly, that he is the true Israel. The true son. Look in verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now that's a curious thing to say. So does this mean that the servant of the Lord in these songs is actually the people of Israel? After all, Israel is referred to as a servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah, like in chapter 41. However, the context does not allow for the nation to be the servant in this song. For one, uh, chapters 40 through 49 really paint Israel in a terrible light, to put it gently. And for another, verse 1 speaks of the birth of an individual with a mother. That doesn't seem to fit. And then what, what takes the cake, I think, is verses five and six when we get there it says that the task of the servant will be to gather Israel to the Lord so how can Israel gather Israel to the Lord especially this idolatrous Israel of the larger context how can Israel restore herself to God well she can't right and neither can we by the way Israel's hope then and our hope now cannot be found in self. 
Self-esteem and looking inwardly for the answers is folly. Do not esteem what is corrupt. Instead, esteem Christ. And our hope and our joy and our life are found in Jesus, the faithful servant in whom the Lord is glorified. Now, we could leave verse 3 there, but I think we actually need to follow this a little bit further. So taking all of Scripture into account, the Lord is saying a little bit more when he says to his servant, you are my servant Israel. So listen closely and try to follow me here for a minute. All of the redemptive purposes in the Old Covenant, through the ceremonies, through the sacrifices through the systems of worship all of those redemptive purposes of God in those things served as types and shadows that would find their substance and their fulfillment in Jesus I think that that's something that we we already have a a decent idea of all of that uh, the sacrifices the ceremonies the temple uh, furnishings all of this was a type and a shadow pointing to the reality, which is Christ. And the book of Hebrews gives us great detail explanation of that. We don't need a temple anymore. We don't need a priestly line. All manner of sacrifices for atonement for sins and etc. We don't need those things anymore because all of them are fulfilled and have come to an end in Jesus. Okay? Now, with me so far. Now let's continue because the text brings in Israel. Likewise, so just, just like what I just shared about the fulfillment of those things in Christ, likewise, all of the redemptive purposes of God through ancient Israel herself served as types and shadows that find their substance in fulfillment in Jesus. Now Apostle Matthew helps us with this in Matthew chapter 2 when he quotes Hosea chapter 11. So let's take a little detour for a second and try to flesh this out so so that we can really hear verse 3 the way that I think we need to hear it. So go to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea was a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, before the fall to Assyria and in chapter 11 he says something here that the apostle Matthew will pick up on so Hosea 11 1 and 2 the Lord is speaking and he says when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son the more they were called the more they went away they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So in Hosea's uh, reference to Israel here, it's, I think, clear from the passage that he's referring to the nation, the nation of Israel. And the Lord says, uh, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And that's referencing the, the, ex- the Exodus. Now go to Matthew chapter 2, and let's see what Matthew does with this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through verse 15. This is early in the life of Jesus. Herod the Great is trying to 
in his in his tyranny trying to kill off this newborn king and so verse 13 now when they had departed behold that is the the magi behold an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream and said rise take the child and his mother and flee to egypt and remain there until i tell you for herod is about to search for the child to destroy him and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And, and here it is. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. What's clearly referred to as the nation of Israel in Hosea's prophecy, the apostle says, was actually a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son. So even Israel herself was a type, was a shadow of the coming Messiah. And in Jesus, ethnic Israel's redemptive role was fulfilled. So back to our passage in Isaiah 49. He said to me, the Lord said to the servant, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. You are the true son. So this uh, servant's identity we see in these first few verses, he's born of woman, he's the final prophetic voice, final prophetic word of God, and he's the true Israel and the true son. Now verse 4, the servant responds, But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. So the Lord says to the servant, In you I will be glorified. And the servant responds in discouragement, I can't see it. I mean, it feels like I've labored in vain. I've exhausted myself and it looks like I've gotten nowhere. Have you ever felt in a similar way before? Maybe you've worked and worked and tried and tried and prayed and prayed to serve the Lord faithfully, but all of it seemed to amount to nothing. I'm sure that each of us have had times like that when we don't see the results that we expect to see. And the servant felt those same human emotions. And my mind goes to times when Jesus would express frustration to his disciples when that would peek through, like in Matthew 17, 17, when he said, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You remember that? Those moments of frustration. And our text gives us no explanation for this expression of troubled feelings from the servant, except perhaps a hint in verse 7. But whatever the reason for the discouragement, he doesn't dwell there. I think that's the example that we're supposed to see in the servant. He doesn't dwell there. It doesn't shake him utterly. So amid this turmoil of soul, we see that the servant looked to God to bring the fruit of his labors as the Lord willed. So we have a servant, the the seed of woman, born of woman, the prophetic word, the true Israel, and the one who hopes in God. Just like Paul would say, 
uh, as following the example of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The results, the hope, it's all placed in God. So whatever we think we're due for the service to God that we give, whatever fruits that we expect to see from our labors, let's dispose of that and, like the servant, entrust ourselves to God. The servant entrusted himself to the Lord. In the verse 5 and verse 6, so we've got a, an introduction to him, and we see his trust in the Lord, and now we're, we're getting to the point where we're going to see him receiving a task from the Lord. Verse 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, so this is still the servant quoting the Lord here. He who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. How will the servant glorify God? He will glorify God by securing redemption for all nations. Cyrus the Great, we've referred to him, in the hand of God, he rescued Israel from Babylonian bondage, that lesser redemption, that lesser rescue. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, will rescue the world from sin, rescue the world from bondage to sin. It is, it's not enough for you to redeem Israel only, the Lord says. No, I'm going to make you as a light to all nations. You will carry my salvation to the ends of the earth. And actually, you know, you and I come into the story here at this point as well. We are drawn into the servant's task of global redemption through the Great Commission. We prayed this morning about international missions. We, his people, share in the work to carry the light of Jesus to the nations and the message of his salvation to the ends of the earth. I think the apostles understood that this was the case. Because, uh, for example, uh, Paul quoting verse 6 from our passage, he says in Acts 13, 46 and 47, it, he says to unbelieving Jews there, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, and since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And his reasoning is, for, is verse 6 of our passage. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As Jesus said one time, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So we too join in this mission that the servant has to reach the nations. Well, the servant's speech ends here, and the Lord's speech begins. And so our second heading, the Lord's speech, verses 7 through 12. And they, now these verses, it's really neat to watch because they lay out the servant's assurance. So the Lord has already told his servant I will be glorified in you, and you will be a light to the nations. And then we see that the servant will succeed 
in that global task of redemption. This isn't a, um, a task where he'll go make possibilities or he'll give it a good shot and we'll see how it fleshes out at the end. No, he's going to actually succeed in this redemption. So the Lord's speech opens in verse 7 by declaring the servant's success. Let's look there. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And that you is masculine singular. He's speaking to his servant there. The Lord speaking to one who is deeply despised, one who is abhorred by the nation, one who is the servant of rulers. We, we start getting glimpses there of the type of ministry in life that he would have. The servant's labors will not be in vain because even though he would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the Lord declares that rulers will see and rise up and prostrate themselves in humility and in reverence for the servant who has come to redeem. All peoples shall see and acknowledge the servant. Does that ring a bell from another passage? Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's that theme again. You will glorify me, the, the Father said to the servant. Praise God that Jesus will not fail to be the light to the nations and to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, as the text continues, and now we're picking up our pace, we see the gathering of the nations to God in verses 8 through 12. So in these last few lines of the Lord's speech, they illustrate for us how God's people scattered throughout the world will be brought all the way home. And now we start seeing shepherd language. It's very beautiful descriptions here. So he uses Old Covenant language of blessings to describe New Covenant promises in this passage. In verse 8, the servant will be given as a new covenant to the people. We saw that last week in chapter 42, verse 6 also. In verses 9 and 10, the servant will shepherd his people by making them lie down in green pastures and leading them beside still waters. You see the same pictures there? And in verses 11 and 12, the Lord will remove whatever hindrances lay in the way of his people coming home. I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor anything can separate his people from the love of God. So it's almost like the apostles read this servant song. The servant, Jesus, will succeed in his global redemption. And as he said, he will not lose one of what the Father has given him. And as the good shepherd, he will lead them all the way home. And as your shepherd, he will lead you all the way home. So it's only fitting then, as we come to the final verse, 
that Isaiah speaks up. So now the prophet uh, is chiming in. He's given this word from the servant and from the Lord, and now he's calling for a response, calling on all creation to respond to the wonder of this servant's mission. So this is heading three, the people's praise, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Maybe that's a little bonus word that we might need to hear during this season. The message about the coming servant comforts his people. And shows his compassion. So how should we respond to this terrific news? How should we feel about this uh, worldwide plan of redemption that God has that he's going to accomplish through his servant? Uh, How should we respond uh, to the comfort and the compassion that God has given his people through sending such a servant as this? Well, Isaiah says, let the singing and the praising begin. So let's bring it all to a close now and keeping this larger historical context in our minds. In the passing of time, Cyrus the Great would come and was used in the sovereign hand of God to deliver his people Israel from bondage in Babylon. The lesser servant's task was done, yet the greater need for God's global people remained. The world continued to wait for the greater servant to deliver from the greater bondage to sin and death. And then came a silent night, a holy night in David's town. Who is the baby lying in Bethlehem's manger? What makes his coming of such significance that all of creation is called to praise and to joy. Well, he is the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, born of a woman, as the final prophetic voice of God, the true Israel, the true Son, sent to be a light for all nations, to carry God's salvation to the end of the earth, His success is guaranteed. He will shepherd his people all the way home. Let the joyful singing begin. Aren't you glad he came? Let's pray. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. May he be exalted, the great servant of the Lord. In his name we pray, amen.